Welcome to Terror Talk. Before we start the show today, I wanted to give you a heads up about our Patreon community. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron and join our Discord community, where we watch film together and chat daily. You also have early access to our episodes and a mini-cast that we do exclusively for Patreon members. Also, check out our new website at terrortalkpodcast.com. Follow along as we build it together. Most of all, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. So today on the show, we are going to juxtapose, discuss uh, the films The Babadook and It Follows, both as physical manifestations of a psychological condition, because that's what we think. And that's what a lot of people think. I mean, if you read about these movies or talk about these movies with people, that's what it is, sort of metaphor. Yeah, I think that's what made this The Babadook so frightening absolutely was it was undeniably a she was tormented yes for sure um in a very relatable very sad way i mean both of these movies i feel have a sadness to them uh the babadook is a 2014 australian psychological horror film written and directed by jennifer kent in her directorial debut i remember this film was at sundance i didn't see it there but i do remember it made a it made a splash um it's based on kent's 2005 short film monster that she made so mm-hmm. it was at the 2014 sundance film institute um festival in january and yeah what did you think of I love this movie. Oh my I mean I've talked about this on other episodes. It's in my top five favorite horror films. I don't even know if I'd classify it as a horror I mean it's a psychological thriller. There's horror elements because the, the monster's so scary, but it's yeah. it's it's way up at the top for me. Cool. Yeah. And so the other film that we're going to talk about uh, is called It Follows. It is also a 2014 movie, only it's uh, an American horror film written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. And super. <laughs> it follows a 19-year-old college student who is pursued by a supernatural entity after sexual intercourse. It also debuted at a film festival in 2014, only it was at Cannes Film Festival in France. So... Um, what did you think of this movie? Did you like this movie? I did. What I will say, though, is when it started and, you know, it, I believe it takes place in the 80s. Um, you can tell by the cars and you can <laughs> yeah. tell. And I'm looking and I'm going, God, this looks so much like where I grew up. And maybe it's just oh, because. Of, and then I found out it was. Oh. And Clawson High School is where a lot of my friends' parents went to high school. So Clawson was very close to Troy, Michigan, which is where I'm from. <laughs> and so it was so because there are neighborhoods that are very, very, very uh, particular to a certain, um, you bet, you know, geographic location. And I was like, God, that looks like, not only does it look like Michigan, it looks like Oakland County, Michigan. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my god! And then I looked and it up, it and they were like that. The that last scene where it's the the pool that's filmed at Clawson High School. So it was just like I used to play soccer against Clawson. It was oh. really kind of cool. And so it, it, it because of that, and it being in that a neighborhood, and I was not a teen in the eighties. I was younger, but it was like it that even made it more kind of creepy. And I right. don't know. Um, yeah, because you could bring your personal yeah, like, yeah. attachment to it, and just. But overall, I mean, I really did. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was clever. Yeah, I mean, this movie, both of these movies have gotten good critical. I mean, they're from 2014, so we're not talking about new movies, but they were both critically 
you know, successful that way. Uh, people who saw them later, of course, you know, it's like the hype. There was a lot of hype. <laughs> yeah. Especially about It Follows because it's relatively unique. So, so let's get into, let's talk about the Babadook first, shall we? Sure. Um, I think that it's widely discussed or understood that well let me let me just talk let me just say what the plot is so let's go there so amelia is a troubled and exhausted widow living in australia city who has brought her six-year-old son samuel or sam um who brought up sorry brought up her six-year-old son because her late husband oscar was killed in a car accident that occurred uh, when they were driving amelia to the hospital during labor so that's extremely important <laughs> mm-hmm. because psychologically speaking, what happens is that, in, in my opinion, is that her husband dies while they're, you know, while she's in labor. And I think that she forever attaches his death and her grief to her son, Sam, who's born For on that sure. day. And so they kind of, that starts in motion a very profound attachment issue mm-hmm. that happens throughout this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then (laughs) Sam begins to display erratic behavior. Uh, he becomes an insomniac. He talks about an imaginary monster and like, doesn't he build weapons to fight the monster? He has this, uh, like wooden slingshot where she's like, don't you take that out of the house? And he's like, ah, (laughs) by the way, he was really good. (laughs) He's so cute. That kid. I mean, he was good. Like as far as creepy kids or what have you, you know, there's always like creepy kids in movies. he, He just, more than creepy, he just played that distressed element really well. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> one night Sam asks his mother to read a pop-up storybook to him. Uh, and the story is called Mr. Babadook. And it describes the monster, the Babadook, a, ta- a tall, pale-faced humanoid in a top hat with taloned fingers, which torments its victims after they become aware of its existence. And in this movie, I'm struck by the fact that uh, as part of the metaphor that we're starting to talk about, you know, she mindfully brings the book in the house. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe it's, we should talk about how, I believe you and I believe that, you know, she had a complicated grief situation going mm-hmm. on that turned into clinical depression mm-hmm. and that the Babadook is a metaphor for depression. Yes. And so the reason why I say she mindfully brought the book in the house is that a lot of times when you talk to people who suffer from depression, um, because for the first part of this movie, she's, she's, she's keeping her grief at bay in general. I mean, you know, it's there. She's kind of keeping it in bay. But when you talk to a lot of people with depression, at least in my experience, they can't really qualify one event that brought on the episode or made it worse or anything, but like a series of events, you know? Mm -hmm. And for her, it was this grief that she was dealing with. And then often I've heard people with clinical depression describe like letting it in. Mm. And in this movie, I think that moment is when she brings the book inside. Yeah. Um, wow. 
I mean, there's just so much depth to this movie. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you were saying at the beginning, which is the, you know, she was carrying him. Mm-hmm. The accident happens. She loses her husband. She has their son. And my first thought is there's such a disconnect. There's resentment. There's guilt uh, over not wanting to be around him. Yeah. How disorganized that ends up making him feel. There's this like ambivalent attachment because she clearly, and in, in, there are times where when her depression, and I think we see this with clinically depressed people as well, there's these moments where even in the midst of their episodes, you see a glimpse of she's handling the day and yes. she's able to attend to him in those moments, but so easily triggered by um, whatever he does. And and clearly the the more and this happens with uh, mo- parents and children, the more he gets worked up and starts to act out because now he's responding to that internal critic. He already knows that he's a trigger to mom unconsciously. He starts to push for attention. She reacts to that. And this becomes this perpetuating cycle of their relationship. So he's now, consuming a lot of what she's feeling but as a child it's manifesting in this like behavioral problem and it's really really sad to watch this because she's sitting there and and you feel sorry for her even though you know that this little boy is suffering and that's what he's trying to communicate to her but can't articulate it I have this sense of empathy for her because she's lost everything nobody believes her and this is what we see a lot of times when people get depressed. No one really feels sorry for you. They think you're crazy. Why can't you fix it? Go get help. Right. And she starts to isolate and it starts to build. Right. And so if you're watching this movie, I just want to make clear, like if the if we're saying that the Babadook is depression, right? So then the story is, is that you're seeing this, uh, this ghosty, you know, the Babadook haunting this kid and this mom and scaring the crap out of them. So it does read like a horror film. Mm-hmm. But if the but if the Babadook is clinical depression, I, I totally hear what you're saying in the sense that like no you know, people with depression, nobody really believes you. Like just get up. Just do your dishes. Just remember when she calls into work? Yeah. And she's like, fine, get rid of all my shifts. I can't help it. I can't come in. I can't function. Yeah, like, I don't care. Like, do fire me, whatever. Like, I can't do it. And to clarify what I was saying before is I don't mean that the, you know, that people let depression overwhelm them. I I use that phrase. What I, what I meant was, is that there's that moment that it gets so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that it comes flooding in. In other words, She's through the first bit of this movie, she's keeping it at bay. Mm-hmm. She's keeping her together and she's going through her life and you can see that she's struggling, but she's compartmentalizing it. She's like, she's pushing it away, pushing it away, pushing it away. And then I think what happens with the Babadook and what's going on with her son is we're seeing her at a crescendo moment where she just gets overwhelmed by the depression. And then back to what you were saying, which is that, 
nobody believes her, just like you wouldn't believe someone who was telling you that like you were being haunted. Mm -hmm. And that is so much like what depression is like, Mm -hmm. just being haunted by something that no one takes seriously. Right. Like they just think you can like behave your way out of it. Oh, she's depressed again or yeah. Yeah. Because, because we, you know, the public misunderstands depression so Mm -hmm. profoundly. And I also think that films are accountable for that. Mm -hmm. I think that this particular film is fantastic. It gives a, a real, I would say, I mean, as we go through this, I mean, I think it really gives a realistic picture of depression as you know, in this movie, as opposed to, a, a, a footnote or a joke, you know, in a, that happens in a lot of movies and series where, mm-hmm. dep- and we just throw that word around, just like we throw the word borderline around. Yeah, or manic. Or manic. Mm-hmm. It's like, I always have to ask questions when people do that. I, yeah. I'm like, well, are you, even clinicians, yeah. I have to say, well, you're using the word borderline. <laughs> What mean, are you talking about? A disorder, a organization, a, a trait? Yeah, what a are trait, we talking yeah. about? <laughs> no, it's very true. Um, this movie is, it's terrifying from a, like you said, if you're watching it as a horror movie, it's incredibly sad and tragic if you watch it from just a psychological standpoint, because working with families, I work with adults and I do work with younger kids too, not kids anymore so much, but teenagers. I used to work with kids. Um, I've seen the way that, um, a history of mental illness in families can play out this way where now the child is developing early signs or prodromal signs of what you know is going to be a problem later. And whether that's conduct disorder or, you know, he has these, um, it's almost like reactive attachment, Mm -hmm. right? Where he has these moments where he, um, even in the, the, without the presence of any sort of trigger, he explodes and he can't soothe himself and he can't be soothed. And they, you know, there's the scene where he has the seizure in the back of the car, which is like a metaphor for other stuff, but, and how she can't soothe him. And, and they are just feeding off of each other's illness nonstop so much that you know, the people around them are like, oh my God, what is wrong with these people? Which is the stigma of mental health. And no one's really asking. They're just pushing them further and further away because they don't want to catch whatever it is that these people have. That even happens in the system. Sure. And I can't tell you how many times I hear someone say like, well, let's concentrate on what's going well, you know? And, and I get that, that, positivity, et cetera, is really important. And there's lots of treatments and ways to work with people where you need to redirect them to what they can do. Like that's important. It's an important piece. But with depression, you know, you really have to talk about, you have to meet them where they're at first. I don't think you can, you just can't, it's just not successful. I mean, I'm saying can't and won't and all of that, but it's like, it's just, I, it's just never successful when you skip the part where you accept them fully and acknowledge fully the distress and pain that they're in before you start to move on. Right. And nobody does this for her. No, no. And I think it's the a big difference between how we treat anxiety and depression. I think with anxiety, there's ways to, to, help that person see, well, what are the coping skills we've, absolutely we've, right. Cause anxiety is actually 
very motivating if we can channel it the right way. And it's thought produced. And it's thought produced. Yeah. So let's dig in. What have we worked on? What are you what are you automatically defending when when I bring this up and you know right. I can't or you right. okay. <laughs> anxiety's very different work, but depression, you're absolutely right. It's almost like meeting somewhere where they are in addiction, mm-hmm. wanting them to be further along. You can't do that. No. So she Oh God. And, and, and I think when she finally consumes the Babadook, which is meaning she just really gives in fully and consumes this depression, um, and becomes psychotic and dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I want to make sure we add one thing to that. Okay. Like as far as um, mental health stuff, is that another, so we've, we've said um, grief, we've said clinical depression, but I think we also have to acknowledge um, s- profound sleep deprivation mm-hmm. that turn like sleep, sleep psychosis mm-hmm. is also a part of this. It could and be, you're just about to talk about yeah, that. So I mean, that's why I could, wanted- <laughs> sure. I mean, with, with depression and sleep deprivation, people can, develop psychotic symptoms. So it's probably a combination of both because the insomnia is a symptom of her major depression. It just right? like erodes her personality entirely. Yeah, and it, then she it, becomes a danger to her son. And Right. Yeah. So she consumes this demon who now she has taken on the attributes of fully. And here, let's go back to that book. Yeah. So she tries to burn this book. She tries to destroy this book. She throws it out. Mm-hmm. It shows right back up at the door. And what does she do? <laughs> She brings it back in. Yeah. Right. And she starts to go through it. And now it's individualized and personalized to her. She's in it. And she starts to see uh, there's a foreshadow of what this book tells her she's about to do. And she Mm -hmm. can't believe it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. Do you even want to do you want to comment on? No, go ahead. Yeah. I I just was going to say that um, I think working with clients who suffer from this much depression, many of them are, are quite aware of what might be ahead. Um, whether that's suicide, whether that's drug abuse, whether that's violence and not that mental illness is, um, directly, you know, related to violence, but it can be insert. Um, and so she, she starts to know that this is getting worse and she starts to be able to see that um, there's stuff ahead that could mean the end of her life, the end of her mm-hmm. son's life. And it's know. like, if you think about a wave, you know, yeah. and allowing the wave to take you over, because I do think that people with depression, if we're going <laughs> to throw out an additional metaphor, uh, which I do often in my work is I do look at depression as, as an ocean and in, a, in waves and that, you can be on the shore, you can be halfway in, you can be, uh, you can succumb to the wave or you can drown in it. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty, mm-hmm. it's a pretty important metaphor. Um, or I, I would just say, I think it's a pretty accurate metaphor. And so like, I just imagine her being overwhelmed by the wave, mm-hmm. you know, walking out too far <laughs> while wading in too far into what's really happening to her um, and being drowned by it. But then by being drowned by it is, of course, where the story goes, which mm-hmm. is more interesting from a movie perspective right. and from the horror perspective. But that's also the only way we get to the resolution of this movie, mm-hmm. um, which I think continues to be an accurate 
more excellent than most um, realistic uh, metaphor for treatment <laughs> and how that goes um, for depression. So what I mean by is that depression is either quantified as managed or in remission. Mm -hmm. It's not cured. cured. Yeah. (laughs) So that's just an important distinction um, that we want to make because it speaks to a lot of things. You know, people will often ask us, uh, you know, can my depression be cured or fixed or I want to be healthy or a lot of people use the word normal. You know, I just want to be normal. I just want to have that process. And it's not that we want to dissuade people from having treatment because it can be managed and it can be in remission. But I believe that the, the metaphor in this movie is that ultimately the monster is kept in the basement. Yeah. There's this, and to add to that, uh, the unpredictability of when it will get bad again. And one of my favorite lines at the end is when the little boy asks her, how was it today? And she said, it was quiet. Mm -hmm. And when we think about, people who suffer from mood disorders, psychotic disorders, um, you know, the quieting of the mind, having a day where it's not taking over, right? And it was still right. disruptive. She goes down there and he's, it's, it's, still, it's still tormenting her in that moment, in that brief moment, but nothing compared to, you know, she's learned to compartmentalize it or at least it's in that remission, but it still isn't good. And no. then for her, when she comes up and she says to him, it was quiet today. I do believe she wasn't hiding that from him. I think she really believed on that day. I mean, that was actually a version of quiet, which speaks to when someone is that depressed, their normal is not like our normal. There's still going to be a baseline depression every day. It might just not be as loud. Well, yeah. And that's, I guess, where I can use the ocean metaphor. It's kind of like you know, the sea was quiet today. Yeah. It didn't, it wasn't rough. It, it didn't overtake me. I was able to manage it kind yeah. of thing. And, you know, the monster being kept in the basement is a metaphor, you know, for her subconscious. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I've, I've managed to keep it at bay. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's underneath the surface. It's in the basement. I mean, it's a perfect kind of metaphor um, so that it's always with you. It's not cured, right? She's managing it. And then she even, um, she even feeds it worms, mm-hmm. which of course are, you know, what do worms do? They, you know, process decay and they process it into healthier material. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> it's like, and I think of that as like, like therapy. That's yeah. Kind of what we do. Yeah. Um, we're worms. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're worms. People feed us the stuff and we process it into, um, hopefully, we process those thoughts and feelings uh, into acceptable matter yeah. to go out and uh, form narratives to go forward in your life over time. It's so just, it's just a really intelligently written yep. and well thought out plan. I mean, plan um, <laughs> film that um, I don't know, just does such a good job. It's still targeting the horror audience Yes. But then also really fulfilling people who watch want that deeper sort of yes. you know, walking with that. It's got the good script, so mm-hmm. it's well-crafted, right? It's not a junk script. No, and as a horror film, a standalone horror film, it's terrifying. And like anyone listening to this episode might be like, ugh, I don't want to read all that garbage into it. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is know, fine too. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to us. Uh, which is fine too, because 
I I enjoyed it as a flick first and then read about it. Dug into it. Dug into it. I saw I saw some things there that made sense to me psychologically and then I dug into it and mm-hmm. watched it again and, and all of that. So let's add this other film, It Follows, to this. I already talked about what it is. Can we just real quickly talk about um, the girl with the tube socks who like <laughs> pisses everywhere? Okay. Wow. Jump into the middle. What do you want to say about I her? I just <laughs> was really shocked by her whole presentation. <laughs> I mean, she was, I mean, they all of the, the people that were following her had like, you know, weird oddities about them, but she was something else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jamie <laughs> goes on a date with her new boyfriend. And that night, um, the boyfriend, <clears throat> Hugh, points out a young girl in the back of the theater. And when Jamie says she cannot see the girl, Hugh becomes unnerved and asks them to leave. So Hugh is obviously seeing things. Um, on another date, Hugh and Jamie have sex in the car. <clears throat> but after her, after they have sex, he incapacitates Jamie with chloroform. And we're like, whoa, what's happening here? And who just carries chloroform around? I'm like, is this a rape fantasy? What's happening? Like re- re- revenge fantasy yeah. movie? Like I, I, I went in cold, so it was good because I didn't know what was going on. And, uh, and she, but then she wakes up like still in her underwear tied to a wheelchair in the middle of like a packing plant or something. And then Hugh explains the movie to us, basically. Hugh explains that she's going to be pursued by, well, I mean, he doesn't say it this way, but a sexually transmitted demon, basically. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say it. He says, you know, pursued by an entity that's only gonna, that only they can see, um, which can take the appearance of a person that they they walk, they don't run. So you can like run away from them, but they'll eventually just walk slowly mm-hmm. to you, which is really terrifying and great for a horror movie when things move slow. It's like Jason yeah, or, you know, any zombie old zombie movie. Yeah. And there's, they're normal people to a certain extent, but they, they have some strange, you know, like the old lady, there's something off about her or the well, naked yeah, man on top of the, sometimes they get hurt and get right back up. And then sometimes they get hurt and they don't come back. And, you know, there's a lot of like no rules type of thing with that. Um, but, so what we've got here is we've got young people having sex and you need to have sex with someone to pass the demon on like a sexually transmitted disease. That's the premise, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of unique. Yeah. And the, it is unique. Um, I like that they used the way that they used the people that follow her. These, mm-hmm. you know, as a metaphor for, sexual assault and mm-hmm. what what does follow someone after they have been through this yeah and the amount of people who you know there's a lot of victim blaming not understanding questioning her you're fine what are you worried about um i don't know it was well i i like the way that it was executed yeah, a lot of people have talked about this as like a parable to any, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis, any sexually transmitted infection mm-hmm. of how, what I'm, I think the way we can best talk about it in some ways is that, you know, each 
person that deals with the sexually transmitted demon in this movie deals with it in a different way. So her boyfriend, who's who's obviously knowledgeable about having had this demon, uh, rapes her to, or no, uh, has consensual, consensual sex with her and then has to um, chloroform her and kidnap her and then tells her about it. And that's how he chooses to like, this is the only way you're going to believe me. This is the only way you're going to believe me. But also what I saw in that was, this is the only way I'm going to survive. It was like self-preservation mm-hmm. because what he explains is that if she can stay alive, then he can stay alive because it only comes after the last person. Right. But if she dies, it'll come after him and it'll just keep going down the line of right. the sexual partners. Um, so I see a lot of like, you, if you're good, then I'll be good. So mm-hmm. do good. <laughs> um, and then at one point she has, you know, she explains this to her friends, which was a different way to go, right? Like her boyfriend didn't tell anyone. Right. And then just did it this way, non-consensually. And what she decides to do is, I guess could be seen as more morally, you know, I don't know, conscious, is she tells everybody about it. So that's an interesting, you know, allegory or whatever you want to call it for sexual disease, right? Well, the the protective factors around that. So in this movie, like the reason why I was mentioning earlier, they don't look like, you know, Freddie or they don't look like Jason. They look like normal people to a certain extent that when she tells her friends what's going on, when she's in the company of them, she can say, do you see that person? And if they say, no, you know, she's in trouble. Mm-hmm. But I, I think of it too, as um, the, that PTSD reaction to sexual assault to just being so hypervigilant wherever I'm working with a, a, a survivor of sexual assault right now. And we, we talk about no matter where she goes and where she, how she has to face her back certain ways. And, and so I think that um, by her telling her friends, it's her way of, you know, developing that support system and that safety that we oftentimes see women do after something like that. I don't know if men do as much because it's underreported. It's not mm-hmm. as seen as typical or they need to figure it out on their own. It's not studied as much. Either. It's not studied as much. So it made, I thought that was a, a perfect way of demonstrating that too, is he was here trying to deal with it on his own. And she's like, Hey, I'm going to talk to my friends and I'm going to, great. you know, yeah, the gender differences are definitely represented in those moments. Yeah. Um, and I also sort of see how if you, if we think of the demon as a sexually transmitted disease that can kill you. And that's Mm -hmm. why people talk about this as a parable for HIV AIDS is because some people handled it, um, like they didn't tell the person. Right. And then some people were honest and open. And some people were open with everyone they knew in order to try to handle it. Mm -hmm. So that was the difference I found with those two people. But then she ends up having sex with one of her friends who knows who's been told about it. Like she tells her, but he doesn't believe her. He's just taking it as an opportunity to have sex with her. (laughs) And such an adolescent decision to go, that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The narcissism of teenage land, right? The, the, I'm limitless. The, um, yes. I'm the exception. Yeah. I, that's not going to happen to me. That's that, frontal lobe consequence issue 
mm-hmm. doesn't have the sense of consequences. I'll risk that to be able to sleep with her. Exactly. And, and literally doesn't know how to assess realistic consequences. Or risk. Or risk at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're laughing because we just know that that's organic to teenagers. That's not like they don't decide no. to not understand consequences. But I think a lot of parents think that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of parents think like, no, they're just being willful. The it's amount like, of times I have to tell no. parents the, the lecturing is not going to work. No, sorry. No. Sorry. If you would like to hear alternatives, please ask me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, so then there's that guy. So then that guy ends up, you know, there's demise with that, which is creepy and horror movie-esque so there are some good elements of horror in this movie as well the way they deal with the ghosties coming after people and and all that i wanted to comment to uh, brought this up to you before we started recording but the the director intentionally made no rules around the monsters uh the, the people that were following and I think that's also another metaphor if we're looking at it from an HIV or STD standpoint is some people are going to catch it. Some people are not. Um, some people are going to be affected by it one way. Some people are going to be unaffected um, or passing on to the next person. So he was in some, depending on where you read, there's some platforms where he's criticized for that uh, being a plot hole and it not making sense. And to me, it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. because we can't control, you know, it's like if you look at COVID right now, why are some people getting no symptoms? Why are some people dying and everything in between? Um, if you look at COVID, COVID as a, a hypothetical or metaphorical monster, it has no rules. So this is what he did with that. And I thought that was cool because usually in movies, there is some sort of system or formula to what happens with the monster. And this was very intentional. Yeah, and I think that adds to our the tension of this movie. Uh, I thought the, I mean, just to add, like I thought the score was the, the soundtrack was really fun. Mm-hmm. That added to the atmosphere. I think the tension and the fear of being pursued is very palpable here. And I think what you're talking about adds to that immensely. Mm-hmm. Is that if it's kind of like in any of the old classic slashers, if the if the bad guy doesn't have any motivation or rules to him in the way he kills or the way they do things, then that's much scarier for an audience member. And I think much closer to reality because like, and we do a lot of true crime around here and in true crime, you don't know all of that until people like us or even, you know, all even more experts in true crime than us, like go into these cases and talk about them in hindsight, yeah, you know, we do a three-part series on Ramirez or something. This is old news. It's but, way hindsight, you know, way yeah. hindsight. So, like, or what when we it's call, happening? Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, or what, like, sometimes is called a like a psychological autopsy. Yes. You go back and you look through it. I mean, that's forensic. What did we miss? Forensic. What yeah. is forensic? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, what did it's we? After the fact, really. Um, so for sure. So, yeah, I, I want I wanted to say one more thing, too, about sure. the the sexual assault piece. Yes, because it's implied that she's a, a, a survivor, a victim of assault. And so without giving too much of the ending away, um, the hardest monster at the end is the one at the end. Mm-hmm. And what is there's they allude to the fact that that that's the one that represents her original trauma. OK, 
And I thought that was interesting that um, it could have been her father or something, but there, uh, there's some indication that the reason why he was so hard to destroy at the end was, as we know, you know, when we go through life and we're unintentionally recreating experiences to get over that initial trauma, it, that's the root Mm -hmm. and that's the hardest one to destroy. And I thought that was really cool too. Yeah. And I, that's probably why, I mean, I'm just guessing, but maybe that's why the director intentionally kind of created this. Well, the ending and and a lot of it involves sort of the teenage thinking of how to defeat it. It's like a really stupid kid plan. <laughs> oh, his his plan? Oh, yeah. yeah. All the plans. <laughs> like, we're going to get in the pool and... <laughs> Throw an iron that's plugged <laughs> into the you know, wall. Yeah, yeah. like the... the it's, a, a TV. It's intentionally, like, naive, not yeah. well thought out. And, I mean, um, you know, critics of it would be like, what the heck did they think they were doing? But I see that as very intentional that how do we try to heal our trauma? How do we try to um, figure out what to do after, you know, any kind of trauma, whether that's contracting a sexual disease or, or being assaulted or any kind of trauma that we suffer? How do we try to go about it? Well, a lot of times we're like throwing the bathroom soap at it or, you know, an iron at it or whatever. And we don't, we're just, throwing everything at it not really knowing what to do and then to make that the teenage metaphor for teenage romance and teen thinking like just what we were talking about before they just don't really have the problem solving skills Mm -hmm. and um and so critics will say well it doesn't make any sense and they're not it's not well thought out and all of that but to me that makes it more realistic that makes it more like um, we didn't know what to do and we're kids and we really just get to be in their shoes where they're doing the best they can and we get to just watch them fail over and over again. Yeah. Which creates the tension of the horror film. Right. Which is what we want too. Um, and then hopefully, I mean, I, there's some discussion around the ending of this movie, I guess. I saw it like you saw it, which was they're walking down the street holding hands, her and the the kid from Atypical, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I really liked in Atypical. Um, Kier Gilchrist. I think okay. that's how you say his name. He's great. Yeah. Um, he is not on the autistic spectrum in this movie. No. But he's as still an kinda, actor, he's, he's still kind of odd. He's kind of nerdy, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, nerdy and he's, odd he's and cool. lovable. Yeah. Um, and they're walking down the street together and it's really interesting because it's super palatable like why they're together mm-hmm. <laughs> like she just looks like a trauma victim she's yep. blunted she's like meaning there's no expression and they're just like slowly walking down this sidewalk it's just it's kind of creepy now i saw it like you did i saw a guy dressed like him with the same like white shirt and jacket mm-hmm in the background, like about a block away, Locked just down. like following them. Yeah. Now, not everybody s- s- interprets it that way or something, I guess, but yeah. that's how I, I thought. I think that the director would have intentionally left anybody out of the, <laughs> knowing mm-hmm. if it's called It Follows. Um, I know. Having a random person walk down the street that meant absolutely nothing at that point makes no sense to well, me. Well, my but. thought is that he's introducing the question, like, is that, like he's intentionally putting someone there that looks like that person, him. And so, but there is the room for, it's not finite. Like That looks like who? Who are you comparing him to? The guy, the atypical guy in the front. He's got a white shirt and like a jacket see, on. See, I didn't see him looking like him. 
uh, that this is what this is what I'm saying. This is my vision. Okay. <laughs> this is what I saw was when I was watching the end of the movie is I saw them hand in hand in the front like medium shot and then in the background between them like a block away you see someone walking right. and to me it looked like they had the same outfit oh on. okay S- but that could have been my projection because yeah. i'm not gonna go into like researching it on the internet i don't want to do that before we had our conversation mm-hmm. but like but i did research it enough to see that one of the questions was did they kill it mm-hmm. yeah and so to me it was an absolute no because I thought I saw the guy in the bag. Right. And but can then, you can you really kill it? Right. And can you because we don't know there's no rules. So the, you know, in one scene they can shoot it and it falls down and then it gets back up and then in another scene it supposedly bleeds out in the pool. So there's no nope. rules about how they die either. So there isn't an answer to no, and and just like we've talked about in many shows, trauma isn't linear. You know, the way symptoms and the way things come and go when we've survived things like that, there there isn't any sense or rules about around it. Is is he that far in the distance because it'll be a while before he strikes again? I mean, you could go so many ways with it, but there was someone there for sure, and that meant something. I mean, there's also an it falls too. But. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> for sure. But I was trying to yeah. you know <laughs> take but, it for what yeah, it was worth. Yeah, but. Yeah. But but that's a perfect our our exchange right here is a perfect representation of why there's other there's people talking about it is because like I saw one thing you saw another even just in that one shot mm. um, and I didn't like watch it over and over again to like you know blow up the scene to try to figure out the answer like that's not the kind of movie watcher I am I like to um, think about it psychologically and have my own experience and I think you do too yeah. Um, yeah, I I would I would say that both of these movies um, attempt to and mostly succeed at um, putting together a more realistic picture of the metaphor of mental illness mm-hmm. in horror films, and that's what we were just talking about with this film, where trauma realistically is all over the freaking place. It is, and depression realistically is not cured it's just managed and it's um and so i really enjoyed watching these two movies did yeah. you I, yeah. I i really liked kind of looking at them from this vantage point in mm-hmm. order to do this mm-hmm. so i thank you for that and uh we thank you for listening so um this is terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.